This is the Monday, October 19th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is The History Author Show. Available on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, Player FM, and many other personal audio outlets. You can also tune us in on many new model car stereos, where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other radio. Of course, today we're not driving a car, but a time machine. And we're traveling back to the days of America's founding. The man behind the wheel on this journey is David O. Stewart, author of Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. Mr. Stewart is a constitutional lawyer and president of the Washington Independent Review of Books, a nonprofit website dedicated to book reviews and writing about the world of books. You can find new content on great reads at WashingtonIndependentReviewOfBooks.com or visit our guest's website at DavidOStewart.com for plenty of great content on his other books and the things we'll talk about today. But first, Let's start up that time machine and warp back into the past. You'll see some familiar faces when we arrive at our destination. Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, Dolly Madison, and the great general, George Washington. But wait, who's that small, quiet fellow over in the corner? He doesn't look like he weighs more than 100 pounds. That's James Madison, a man who despite having more towns named after him than any other U.S. president and a major street right here in Manhattan, is easy to overlook in death, just as he was in life. The premise of Madison's gift is that the father of the Constitution knew he didn't have the height and commanding presence of a Washington, Jefferson, or Monroe, or the swagger of Hamilton, and he certainly didn't have the charm or other attributes of his wife, Dolly. But what James Madison did have is an ability to cultivate relationships that would meld the talents of others with his own keen mind. To get results. To get the job done. And getting the job done wasn't easy in the revolution, any more than it's easy today to get legislation done or to lead a nation. The revolutionary generation had all the conflicting visions, politics, petty squabbles and disagreement common to any group project, much less something as complex and stressful as overthrowing the British crown and creating the first self-governing republic since Rome. Our founders weren't always unspeaking faces on coins or silent statues, after all. As John Adams lamented, we don't have men fit for these times. So how did James Madison achieve so much as Secretary of State, later as President, and even in the earliest days of his career helping to create the country? with the Federalist Papers, Constitution, and Bill of Rights, and eventually leading the nation through the War of 1812's many low points, including the burning of the White House. How did he get together with different people and tap their abilities to conceive this new nation 
Born in Liberty? Let's tackle that question and more with David O. Stewart, author of Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. I'm joined on the line by David O. Stewart, author of Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. It's a book about what we might today call the incredible networking skills of the man who many called the father of the Constitution today, but in his life, a title he modestly declined to accept or encourage. Welcome and thank you so much for making time to talk with me on the History Author Show, sir. My pleasure. I was thinking of the painting of the Constitution with all the founders there at the signing and It's easy to get from paintings like that, that the founders were all a band of brothers and that they were united and in harmony and never fought or disagreed on their outlook for really this incredible endeavor. And we call it a miracle, of course, and it took a lot of hard work. It didn't just happen. Madison's gift documents that not only wasn't it a smooth operation, but as I read the book, it occurred to me that James Madison was the indispensable man in uniting America for the peace, just as Washington had been in war, because there's so many things in here in the book, these relationships, that without any one of them, we would have been in real trouble. Do you think that's a fair assessment of your book? It's a good reading of the book. The language you've used has a lot of historical echoes. Washington himself was often referred to as the indispensable man. And I've sort of adopted that and described Madison as the indispensable man to the indispensable man, Hmm. that when it came time for Washington to transition from a military figure to a political figure, which happens, you know, in the mid-1780s, and, you know, he's a mature individual then, he's he's in his mid-50s. It's Madison who really facilitates that and helps him make that transition. Nobody was Washington's peer, but Madison was able to build a remarkably close partnership and as close to a friendship as Washington ever had. And for five years, they were really just unstoppable force in our political life. And really, that partnership, I think, is the one that made the government go in its early years. He was 20 years younger, Madison, than Washington, right? He was, and uh, certainly a head shorter and a good bit narrower. Uh, So, you know, there was never a question as to who was the senior partner in the relationship, and Madison had no problem with that. He figured out very early that if he wanted to get something done in early America, that having George Washington on his side was a spectacular step forward. So he made a real effort to cultivate the relationship and make himself very useful to Washington. And Washington learned about Madison's virtues and came to rely on him tremendously. Well, Madison had knowledge. He was a smart guy. He was a reader. He had so many ideas. And the way that he looks at these people, and it's like putting together the dirty dozen, not particularly flattering to the founders, or anytime you watch one of those movies and somebody wants to put together a team, he had this amazing ability that I never knew until I read Madison's Gift to really identify it in others, but then never feel insecure himself. I mean, we were saying about Washington and his military bearing. There's a story of Washington. I believe he's up in Connecticut during the revolution and two soldiers are fighting, grabs them by the neck and holds them up at the end of his arm. And it's an incredible scene. Washington was so powerful that they say he would shake the men every now and then to make sure that they were listening about discipline in the army. And with Madison, A tiny guy like that, it would have been easy to be intimidated by Washington and never even approach him. And yet 
he really managed to just look at him, identify this, and have the confidence that he didn't always display in person when he approached Washington. He wasn't nervous about being seen next to him. He wasn't trying to stand in a little pile. And I like that in the book and in your interviews, you've always been a little protective of Madison, which I appreciate. There was one interviewer, and he referred to him as little buddy. And you politely said, you know, watch the little buddy stuff there <laughs> talking about Madison. And I, so I wanted to ask, since we've talked about him being sort of forgotten, how did you develop this affection for him? It came, you know, this is not my first book in this area, uh, this time and place. Uh, I did a book on the Constitutional Convention, one on uh, Aaron Burr. And you can't avoid Madison in this era. He's just central to so much. And it seemed to me that he is, in fact, to use a modern term, a bit disrespected by historians. Good historians will refer to him as Jefferson's protege, which just makes my skin crawl. Yeah. You know, Jefferson relied on Madison. Madison told Jefferson what to think on some issues, and Jefferson listened, and he paid attention, and so did Washington. And started Hamilton. Madison was a serious force of power. And he also was quiet. He also was short and skinny. And that meant he was often underestimated in his time. That creates a historical memory that does echo. And I think it helps form the environment that exalts Jefferson. And, you know, he had wonderful talents, but his presidency, frankly, was... Not a hugely successful one. And Madison was our first wartime president. He won the extension of the Bank of the United States or the creation of the second bank. He left a nation that was incredibly prosperous when he finished his second term. Jefferson leaves a nation that's in terrible shape. So this sort of lack of respect for Madison is a historical artifact. And and I do sort of take up for the guy. I think it is, you know, there is heightism in our society, just as there's ageism and all these other isms. And it's something to watch out for. Yeah. And the one big accomplishment of the Jefferson two terms is the Louisiana Purchase. And at that time, who is it that Secretary of State but Madison? So he really is a mover. And he's one of those people that you run into in history that he doesn't care much about credit. But to see people who are his contemporaries, not appreciate him does really rub me the wrong way too. You know, it bugged me that Jefferson didn't really understand Madison's approach. And there's that comment on his deathbed about Madison that shows it. So why don't you tell people that? Yeah, it. I, I highlighted it because it was so frustrating since here Jefferson and Madison are not only just great political allies, but they're terrific friends. They enjoy each other's company in a way that most politicians don't. They were from the same part of the world. They grew up 30 miles apart. They grew up in the same world. They were both sons of large landowners, large slave owners, bookworms, interested in everything, knew something about most things. They enjoyed each other's company phenomenally. And our political partners for 30 years, and on his deathbed, Jefferson says wonderful things about Madison. And then he says, and, you know, of course, it it was true that he never could stand up against opposition. Hmm. And, you know, an individual's remarks on his deathbed perhaps should be somewhat discounted. He may not have been feeling real well. You know, he may not have been in a great frame of mind. He was dying. He didn't feel too good. But it did betray a fundamental misunderstanding of Madison and his style 
and his contribution, which it's kind of awful to find Jefferson doing it. And so I did emphasize it because I think it's one of the misunderstandings that we still focus on. It's very striking that there's only one tribute to Madison in the national capital here. That it, it's an indoor statue at the Library of Congress. <laughs> so uh, he, has, he has been neglected. Of course, people love Jefferson because he's tall and athletic. As I also grew protective of Madison over the course of your book, I thought Madison never jumped over a fence and broke his arm and ruined his ability to play the violin for a long time. And that really says something about the two of them, maybe their styles, or maybe you could tell me if it's a good metaphor, because I thought if that was Madison and he was at a fence, he would either go around it, <laughs> find the gate, he would be calm, or he would find somebody to help him get over that fence. And of course, he had a lot of fences here to jump as he's writing the Constitution and he's working all this out through the revolution. So do you think that that's a fair way to look at the way that these two men are so different, and maybe why Jefferson is better remembered? Well, it's a fun example, uh, and, and I, I want to cut Jefferson a little slack here because my recollection of that episode is he jumped over the fence to impress a girl, um, and <laughs> you know we we all do stupid things to impress women, <laughs> and you know that and Madison was a bit of a romantic himself, and I think he would have cut <laughs> Jefferson a little slack on it as well, but the episode calls to mind when Madison was in retirement. Every day he would ride around Montpelier, his plantation, to look in on the work that was going on. And he had trained his horse. So his horse would open the gate for him so he didn't have to get down and open it himself, <laughs> which seems a much cleverer way than to <laughs> go, go trying to, to leap over. vault it yourself. Yeah. I think it is a fair point that Madison was, and, and he was known to his contemporaries as a personally, physically cautious man. You know, some of that had to do with he, he had lousy health much of his life. Uh, it was as much a surprise to him as anybody that he lived so long. He lived yeah. to be 85, yeah. but he was not well much of the time. The sea, he never traveled by sea, which I didn't know until I read Madison's Gift. He was one of the only founders or the only founder that never took a journey by the ocean, correct? Yeah, there was an, a medical opinion at the time, not reinforced since or since abandoned, that if you had an epileptic-like symptoms, which he did, that being on the ocean, being subject to the waves would make them worse and could bring about fits. And the last thing he wanted was to have extra fits. He, he had a few fits in his life, and they were no fun. So he always turned down the opportunity to go overseas. And when he dies, I always recall the doctors coming to him and saying, you know, we can give you some stimulants and maybe shoot you up with some drugs and keep you alive until the 4th of July, because wouldn't it be great if you died on the 4th of July like Adams and Jefferson did? And Madison tells them no. He rejects this and says basically when his time is up, his time is up. And I thought that also says something about him, doesn't it? He was never looking to squeeze himself in. He was just not looking for the limelight. I think if he had died that day, that would be part of the trivia, and that would have been a huge thing to have happen. It would have been a, quite spooky because not only Jefferson and Adams did on 4th of July uh, 1826, but then Monroe did. Mm -hmm on the 4th of July, 1831, which is the 55th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And Madison is 
as the saying goes, circling the drain <laughs> as they're approaching another five-year anniversary in 1836. It's late June. And again, people on their deathbed are entitled to some considerable consideration. You know, I suspect he felt lousy and, you know, an extra day didn't sound particularly good to him. And you're right. He was not a fellow who thought these sort of flashy things that appeal to the popular opinion, they were not terribly important to him. He always cared about substance. And, you know, it wasn't worth an extra couple of days to him, I have to believe, given how he felt. As you're talking, I'm thinking of Jefferson and Adams sort of still competing there as these very old men dying to not be the one to die last. John Adams is constantly berating himself for his vanity. And there he is on his deathbed, basically asking, can I die yet? Is Jefferson dead? And then he starts to ask, is it the fourth? And I think that that sense of sort of flamboyance is absent in Madison. But if we care about results, we really can't argue with his results. You say he's not this dry creature that we depict him as, just a brain sort of walking around the Constitutional Convention or halls of Congress or wherever it happens to be. The core of his life, you say, was a genuine heart. And his relationship with Dolly, which you include in here, and you said you enjoyed getting to write about a woman for a change, that's the best one, really, for showing that. So describe their relationship, because I think listeners are going to be very surprised to learn about it. Well, it was fun for me to work on Dolly. It was the first time I'd really studied a, a woman's life in early America. It's hard to do sometimes because women's lives are not well documented. They just left fewer records. But with Dolly, you can, and she's a wonderful figure. She has tremendous charm, and that's one of her great contributions. She's a smart woman, but, you know, Madison is a retiring fellow in public events, and she could compliment that so wonderfully that it was a tremendous advantage to him. When he wins the presidency in the election of 1808, the losing candidate says, I lost to Mr. and Mrs. Madison. I might have stood a better chance had I faced only Mr. Madison. <laughs> and it was a loving relationship. James could be flirtatious. There is an amazing sequence he does apparently a few times with Dolly's sister moves into the White House with him, lives with him for several years when she's widowed with a couple of children. And James enjoyed her a lot, but apparently one of the things he would do is kiss Dolly in front of her sister Lucy and turn to Lucy and say, does that make your mouth water? <laughs> now, that's a little creepy. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's his sister-in-law, really. Yeah. But it also is not how we've ever thought about James Madison. You know, yeah. he had a he had a libido. He was uh, had a sense of fun. And Dolly certainly did. You know, in retirement, there's a wonderful story. Dolly had grown wider with the years. James never did. He was always a skinny guy. And she would load him up on her back and carry him around the house. Just rough house. <laughs> I love you know, that. Children shrieking and everybody having a hell of a time. So <laughs> they had a real sense of joy, which comes through from the people who knew them, who knew them at an intimate level. You know, the story of my book is his partnerships. That was part of what his partners, Monroe and Jefferson and Washington and Hamilton and Dolly, all valued as well as his intellect. His intellect was great, was very important, but it also was terribly important that the guy was fun, he didn't take himself too seriously, and he cared about other people. 
I just want to revisit that image so that we don't gloss over it. When you look at the cover of Madison's Gift, just picture him. Go look at a picture of Dolly Madison. <laughs> this little guy, I don't know, I've never, I'm larger than my wife, but I don't know of anybody who still maintains that sort of spirit and is playing around like that with their spouse years and years after they've been married. It's sort of like we love to look at the Grants, Ulysses S. Grant and Julia Dent, and say, well, they held hands you know, well into when they were very old. And I just think that's such a, a lovely little moment of them. Then you also write they used to race on the front porch. These are things that you don't see when you look at that picture of sort of just this slight, unimpressive little guy. And choosing Dolly was also key in this era. People may not realize just how important a hostess was. When you're a rising politician, this was a key role, wasn't it? That's what made this partnership in the, as far as American history is concerned, very, very important. It did. And Dolly gets credit for sort of inventing that. If you look at our early presidents, you know, the Washingtons were stiff. You weren't going to make George much fun no matter what you did. <laughs> and Abigail Adams stayed up in Massachusetts through most of her husband's presidency. She didn't yeah. much care to be in Philadelphia or Washington. And Jefferson was a widower and he actually used Dolly as his hostess some of the time, mm. some of the time his daughter. And so Dolly was at some level just creating this notion, this idea that First Lady, although we didn't have the term then, Dolly was sometimes referred to as the Lady Presidentess little awkward as a term. She established a role as hostess, as facilitator. People would come to her looking for jobs in the Madison administration and would submit their petitions through her. She was a power in her own right, but never got in front of James. Never. She was always respectful of his position. This is, after all, 1809. But she really created a new sense of what a woman could be in politics. I think of their relationship, but I never really thought of how he targeted her in a way that, not in a negative way, of course, but then I realized he went through all of his relationships this way. He had a very sober mind for those things, I guess, from being a sickly young man and not particularly physically imposing. Another gentleman that's easy to overlook now, not in life, but in death, is James Monroe, sometimes viewed as just the little brother of the American Revolution, and he didn't leave a big paper trail about his young life or writings. In Madison's Gift, you describe their relationship, and I found, even though I read a big, thick biography of James Monroe about 10 years ago, I found I got to know him better through reading Madison's Gift, because you read what Madison says and how Madison finds value in him, especially in the War of 1812, which the revolution just shining moment for Monroe, but even more so to me, the War of 1812. And it occurred to me that here's two guys, they ran against each other in an early election, remained friends, and he's in his cabinet and doing all this work. And I thought, Monroe, it must be a real good friend that stands by you as president when you're getting the White House burned down and getting the United States into this war. So talk a little bit about their relationship, Monroe and Madison. Well, it was very much, as I perceived it, a relationship of pals. Monroe was not Madison's intellectual equal. He didn't have any illusions about it. He was a military personality. Uh, very shrewd politically, smart, had great horse sense. But I was a little disappointed when I first was researching the book that so many of Monroe's contemporaries would say, well, he was a terrific fellow, but a little dim. 
And I finally concluded that he was a bit like a term my father used to use, which is smart enough for all practical purposes. He could get the job done, was politically savvy, sometimes more than Madison. He was not the guy you asked to write a political treatise, which probably describes most of our presidents and some of our great presidents. They sort of had their young families together, and they do stand out among these five partnerships that I was writing about in that they had falling outs politically and patched it up. They ran against each other for Congress as young men. Madison wins. They're the only two future presidents who run against each other for lower office. And then when Madison is Secretary of State, Monroe is ambassador to Britain, negotiates a potentially very important treaty with the British, but it's not very favorable. And Madison and Jefferson agree that they're just going to bury it. It's not any use. And Monroe is mortified. And he actually allows his name to be put in nomination against Madison for president in 1808. And they don't talk for two years. (laughs) Monroe's really angry. But then Madison needs him in the cabinet. He needs a strong secretary of state. And he reaches out to Monroe, and Monroe answers the call. Part of it was his own ambition. He wanted the job. But their ability to put aside those hurt feelings, those that upset, which had been very real, and then go out and do the country's business. Monroe was very important to Madison in a war, and the War of 1812 goes on almost three years, and we're terribly overmatched against the British. They are a more powerful nation than we are. They have a more powerful military, and we're not well prepared for war. Madison is not a warrior image. He doesn't have this sense and this ability to sort of mount a white horse and wave his plumed hat and stir the masses. (laughs) And Monroe does. And Monroe brings that to the presidency, brings a sense of gravitas, which Madison needs in his secretary of state. And it's a great partnership through the war. And Madison was very lucky that he had Monroe available to him and that they were able to renew their relationship. And for people that don't know, that war could very easily have gone completely the other way had it not been for at least somebody in the cabinet that had half a brain. I mean, (laughs) Madison, unfortunately, a bad relationship that he chooses is with the man as his secretary of war in that war. And Monroe at least starts taking over. As I'm thinking about Madison not having that military bearing, he tries to rally troops at Bladensburg in Maryland. Of course, you know, they're just not the right men for the job. They're just militia and they get routed. And part of this also was Jefferson. This was Jefferson's armed forces that Madison inherits when this war comes. So when I look at that relationship, I say, when you have the president on the run here, the White House being burned, the Capitol being invaded, there had to be at least somebody there. You know, we tend to overlook because it's a terrible moment. It's a humiliating moment in our history. Foreign troops are burning our national capital. It is one of the worst moments we've had. And two things stand out for me. Of course, as you say, Monroe sticks with him. Monroe and he ride back into Washington a couple of days later, and they bring the nation back. They call Congress back into session, and they're not going to back down. And Madison himself, and, and this is his characteristic through his life, he doesn't get upset. He doesn't get depressed. It had to have been a terrible day, a terrible few days. He just goes back to work. And that's such an important model to set for the country. And although 
his reputation has suffered from this episode. I actually think it's probably why he doesn't make the top five presidents list. When you have the president, the capital burned, it, yeah. it, people remember that. <laughs> but, you know, we did end up settling the war on satisfactory terms. And it wasn't a glorious episode, but for a brand new nation with not much of a military, it was okay. You talk about Madison and Monroe and them coming back into the Capitol when everything's still burning and Madison's main concerns about his library. The poor guy, I felt for him. He loses all his books. But people are talking about surrendering the city to the British because they're still floating around out there and their troops are running around. And is it Monroe who tells them anyone who talks about that's going to meet the bayonet? He does. And Madison, uh, they are as one on that, which is, yeah. you know, we were driven out of Washington once. It's not going to happen again. It shows that partnership because had Madison said that, I don't know that people in this moment of being really angry at him as president would have respected him, would have listened to him even because Monroe, he made his reputation as a hero in the Battle of Trenton, didn't he? So thank God for the United States that Monroe is there with him because he makes that stick. People really believe it, that he will run them through. It makes a difference, absolutely. He appoints Monroe Secretary of War in that crisis. Actually, Monroe, for a couple of periods during the War of 1812, served simultaneously as Secretary of State and Secretary of War. And I think he's the only person in American history to do that. And it gives you a sense for how important he was to the struggle. My guest is David O. Stewart, president of the Washington Independent Review of Books and author of Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. Visit davidostewart.com for information on this and his other titles, including The Wilson Deception, a new Fraser and Cook mystery, The Summer of 1787, The Men Who Invented the Constitution, and American Emperor Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America. Now, that's not even the full list of your titles, and I would mention to listeners you came to writing late, so that's very impressive that you've had this great output. But, of course, many of them focus on this revolutionary period. I think a lot of people figure just automatically it's quite a while ago. It's really been walked over the founders. It's kind of played out like the soil of Madison's plantation and much of the plantations in Virginia, sort of the end of his life. They just overplanted them with tobacco. So what draws you back again and again to this revolutionary period? Well, if you're going to presume to write about this period, which is, as you say, it's one we've studied, it's important to have a fresh perspective. My first book was on the Constitutional Convention, and the subject has been covered before, <laughs> and I had a sense of what I wanted to say. I felt the books that had dealt with it had not captured the political quality of the conversation that, you know, we're so busy exalting them, we don't notice how, un how difficult it was. Yeah. And so, with each book, it's got to be that I've figured out something that I think I can contribute. And with the Madison book, obviously, it was this notion that his personal qualities, his ability to form these partnerships is what allowed him to make such an outsized contribution to our founding. Really, for 30 years, nobody except Washington was more important than Madison. Madison's secretary wrote of him, quote, under all circumstances, he was collected and ever mindful of what was due from him to others and cautious not to wound the feelings of anyone, unquote. That seems like an odd quality for a politician. I found it very striking. You know, politicians are usually extremely conscious of what we owe them, <laughs> not so conscious of what they owe us. And 
I wanted to study that more and understand it better and explain it. I think it's an undervalued quality always. It's a different form of leadership from what you often see, but I think it's wonderful. And I think in our era, as much as any era, it's a quality that leaders would do well to study and emulate. That's my pedagogical goal with the book, and we'll see about that. Yeah, I think even around maybe the Fillmore era there, if they had had self-help books and they were looking back, they might have written a self-help book exactly like this and said, hey, we need compromise right now. Of course, we end up with the Compromise of 1850 under Fillmore. This really was something you learn from him. You you look at it and you say, I could stand to be a little bit maybe more like Madison, which is a nice thing when you read the book. And it's not anything about his intellect, really. It's really about just his warmth and the heart that's sort of beating in this little guy. So it's nice. Yeah, he was able to form partnerships with people with whom he disagreed on many things. Now, he ends up basically in his career not agreeing with Washington and Hamilton, even though he had incredibly productive partnerships with them earlier in his career. You know, if he ended up ultimately unable to reconcile his views with a partner, he would never abandon his views just to get along. He would stick to his ideas But if there was a way to find common ground, if there was a way to work together, he would be sure to find it. And I think both qualities are terribly valuable. The integrity to stick with your own views when you have to, but also the recognition that you can usually find a way to work with somebody else and that there's a whole lot that you can gain from that. Madison's life wasn't without bumpy relationships. Everything wasn't perfect for him. The relationship with the aptly named stepson, Payne Todd, he was a pain to James Madison, but that was sort of a reflection on his relationship with Dolly and his desire to keep her happy, keep the peace. But describe briefly how he handled the troubled Payne. Well, Payne was, as near as we can tell, a spoiled young fellow, and he never really found his place in the world, never really found a useful job. Madison tried to find him things to do. He was in a bunch of business ventures that failed. He became a gambler, drank too much, and Madison ended up covering his debts repeatedly. One of the reasons the Madisons end up with financial troubles is pain. They have to dig him out of trouble repeatedly. And frankly, pain is the reason why we have some limits in what we know about Madison, because he sold off a lot of things from Montpelier to cover his own expenses after Madison dies. So it's a very failed situation. Dolly was always in a terrible state of upset about pain, and Madison would always do his best and would be put in the role of chastising the son, even though he was just a stepfather. You know, this is the best of mothers, and you're not treating her fairly, and she's terribly upset. And they had this soap opera going on for a lot of years. And in his late years, it was a source of considerable sadness to both Dolly and and James. As we're talking about his home life, we did say the word plantation, and James Madison was a slave owner. It's uncomfortable to talk about slave masters in any positive light, I felt as I was trying to formulate this question. Even when you're citing something like his servant, slave, of course, Paul Jennings, had to say such nice things about Madison in his book. I believe it was the first White House memoir was written by Paul Jennings. And I thought of William Tecumseh Sherman and something along the lines of slavery is cruelty and you cannot refine it. 
And yet Madison was, by all accounts, and these are accounts of his slaves, a kind master. He wouldn't beat people. He didn't believe in it. He wouldn't he wouldn't even berate them in front of the other slaves in public. He would do it in private, which is something that even a lot of people that are bosses, <laughs> you wish that they wouldn't berate you. But Madison struggled with this idea of slavery, of owning human beings for a long time, and he never really came to terms with it, did he? He never really overcame it. It's a blot on his legacy. It is a blot. I do a pretty substantial chapter on it near the end of the book because I felt like it was just cheating not to face up to it. He completely understood the contradiction between everything he said about political life and the importance of freedom and human life and the way he lived, which was on the labor of people he owned. As a young man, he bought land in upstate New York and he did it with actually Monroe, and he had the intention of moving there. And he wrote a friend, he hoped never to live on the labor of others. Uh, he never did it. And, you know, there's lots of reasons. He, he never explained it. But, you know, life was pretty comfortable where he was. Virginia was an incredibly good political platform for getting done what he had hoped to do to make the American experiment in self-government successful. And had he moved to upstate New York, he would have abandoned all of that in his career. And he had, you know, a large family and a lot of connections. So he never did it. As a young man, it tortures him, this contradiction over slavery. In his middle years, when he's got such large responsibilities, it seems not to torture him quite so much. And then in retirement, it bothers him a great deal again. I think he is thinking about his legacy. There is an abolition movement. It's nascent, but it's around. People who visit Montpelier, to be honest, they give him a hard time about owning slaves. Uh, Northerners and Europeans basically say, well, how can you do this? And he never does the right thing. He never frees a single slave. He's got a close political associate, a fellow named Edward Coles, who was Dolly's cousin, had been his secretary in the White House, which the secretary then was really chief of staff, and Coles frees his own slaves, and he goes to Madison and says, you can do this, and your legacy will be terribly marred if you don't. And Madison never does. I'm inclined to think it was out of concern for Dolly. He was 17 years older than she. He knew that she would outlive him. There are people who said after his death that he, they had an agreement he and Dolly, that she would free his slaves on her death. She didn't. She had to sell off a bunch to pay debts. He had sold off some to pay debts. It just ends ugly, and it's a tragic thing, <laughs> far more tragic for the 90 slaves he owned than it was for James Madison, and we can't look away from that. We need to recognize it. He knew it was something he had failed on, and he did. One thing about the slave culture and something that very much people feared was being poisoned. And I found it really noteworthy that Madison's grandfather had been poisoned by one of these people that he owned, one of his slaves. And yet Madison is described by his own slave, Paul Jennings, who eventually buys his own freedom, doesn't he, and the freedom of his wife and of his family. But Madison didn't carry any resentment towards these Africans held in bondage, which seems like if you grow up being told that one of them killed your grandfather, whoever they are, you would hold a little bit of resentment. And so I thought, did he ever really hold grudges against anyone? Uh, Patrick Henry. 
<laughs> oh, right. yeah, that's true. I remember that. He really didn't like yeah. Patrick Henry. Uh, they did not get along. But the whole poisoning episode is astonishing, largely, in my view, because Madison never comments on it in his whole life. Nobody ever records that he said anything about it. Just take another episode, which is Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings, his own slave, and his children by Sally, who were his slaves. One of Sally Hemings' children is named James Madison Hemings. Hmm. James and Dolly are visit there. They have to know what's going on. <laughs> it can't be a mystery. Yeah. It's a small place. Jefferson's children by Sally Hemings look like him. They're tall, red-haired people. And we have no record of any conversation. Now, they certainly all understood that these subjects were incredibly incendiary. Just think of being a Madison. You know, there are five or six of them living on Montpelier. They're all pretty small people, not very good with weapons, probably. And they're surrounded by 90 black people whom they supposedly own, they do own, who have every reason to be angry. You would be pretty careful. So it is a culture, a, a world that it's hard for us to understand, to understand how he could live in it. But it's one we have to try to understand to get a sense of the man. At least he wasn't sleeping soundly at night about it. He works out all these figures. He really tries, as you describe in Madison's gift, to find a solution, a way to untie this knot. So I think we should mention that without looking away from the fact that he was complicit in it and benefited from it his whole life. Well, that's right. He did, in his retirement, try to figure out a way to get freedom to the slaves. He was not personally prejudiced. He didn't appear to have race prejudice. He invited a black man to join him at dinner on one occasion. He wrote without any trace of prejudice about black people. He was, however, terribly impressed with the fact that most other Americans were prejudiced, most other white Americans, and he could not imagine an interracial society or a multiracial society. So he really thought if you were serious about freeing the slaves, you had to send them, send black people somewhere else. Uh, and that was just prohibitively impossible. Uh, you could not load up all these people in ships and send them somewhere else, and there was nowhere else to send them. The whole Back to Africa movement was really sort of a canard. So he looked for a solution. He never could figure one out. And, you know, the solution we finally found was terrible, which was the Civil War and killing 700,000 people in the process of it. So it's hard to criticize him for shying away from Civil War as the solution. He rejected the title of father of the Constitution, as I mentioned, saying it was a collaborative effort, which again shows this modesty. And I also like that when he's given the job of writing the Bill of Rights, he doesn't really want to because he says they're just going to be ignored in times of crisis, which shows incredible foresight. We've seen that throughout our history. But he finishes the job and he calls it not altogether useless, which is shows a little bit of his humor. And I wanted to ask you to describe how he approached this job of writing a Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, even though he didn't really believe that there was much point to it. Well, the Bill of Rights comes out of the political opposition of the Constitution after it was written and then revealed to the country. There are only a few rights, personal rights, that are protected in the original Constitution, the right to a jury trial in a criminal case, habeas corpus, a couple of others, but not much. And there is an outcry about that. And Madison 
has reservations about whether it's really necessary, but recognizes politically that, you know, they should have done it and ultimately says pretty quickly, yes, we should have done it and we'll do it now. And when he takes it on, he is very dogged about it. This is not a guy who took on public duties lightly. There's a lot of opposition to the Bill of Rights. This happens in the first Congress. They're setting up the government. They're figuring out tax systems and budget. And many of the other congressmen say, why are we wasting our time with this? We need to do these other things. And Madison sticks to it and pushes it through. He actually doesn't get the one amendment he wants most, which would control state governments. You know, the original Bill of Rights protected rights only against federal encroachment. He thought it was very important to also have some limits on state governments. The political world wasn't ready for that yet in 1791, so that is ultimately stripped out. But I was struck that he did say about a Bill of Rights that, as you point out, you know, they're going to be ignored in times of crisis, which absolutely has been our pattern, and it's not a great one, but there it is. He says, over time, it will shape what we think of ourselves and our country, and they will become more important. And that's absolutely been the case. And Many of them were never really enforced until the early 20th century or even the middle of the 20th century. But they have been, and I think now we as a people would find the Constitution terrible if there were no Bill of Rights. So it was a tremendous contribution he made, uh, and he was quite dogged and effective in making it happen. Well, the phrase tremendous contribution, (laughs) you find yourself thinking a lot in this book when you study James Madison's life. You've given very generously of your time, which I would say is in the spirit of the generous Mr. Madison. But I have one last question. The title, Madison's Gift, carries a dual meaning, of course. There's there's his gift for forging powerful partnerships, these five, but also his gift to us, the descendants of this miracle in Philadelphia and of his constitution and in the Bill of Rights, as Madison was always conscious of what was due from him to others, as we said, how can we be conscious as 2015 modern Americans of what we owe to him and to his republic? Well, I think we owe a small debt to him to remember him and to accord him recognition for what he did. I think he would be much happier if we redeemed that debt by being vigilant about the rights and nature of our political life that he wanted to help build. You know, when he lived, self-government was well, didn't happen. There were kings and emperors and czars. We lose track of just how remarkable it was that Americans said, we're going to elect our own rulers, and we're going to govern ourselves. Public opinion will be the sovereign in this country. And that means we have a responsibility that we have to execute as citizens to exercise our rights, to vote, to be informed, and to cherish what they fought for. My daughter likes to remind me that one of the few times, well, I I hope it was one of the few times that I got short with her was when she was just turning 18 and she expressed no interest in registering to vote. And I just said, people died for that right, and you're going to register to vote. And it made an impression on her. And I think it's embarrassing that we have so many people who can't be bothered to vote and who don't inform themselves. And 
people did die for those rights, and I hope we take better care of them. Well, thank you. That was a great note to end on. The book is Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. You can pick it up to learn about James Madison's relationships with such icons as Washington, Jefferson, Monroe, Hamilton, and of course, his lovely wife, Dolly. Those are the five. David O. Stewart, thank you so much for joining me to bring James Madison to life. Thank you for giving me this chance. Again, the book is Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there when you buy the book. We get a continental every time you do. Once again, thanks to David O. Stewart for joining us and for sharing a side of James Madison's life that can teach us so much about succeeding in our own careers. Please remember to check out davidostewart.com. That's Stuart with a W. And to check out WashingtonIndependentReviewOfBooks.com. You can also let us know what you think of Madison's gift and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading.